Good morning. It's Saturday, October 10th, and you're listening to the fifth edition of Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. Hey, and I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Is it the fifth or sixth episode? I think it's just the fifth. Okay. I hope. Anyway, you're listening to an episode of Morning Meeting. You know what today is, Ashley? My birthday. No. Is it? No. Joking. LOL. It's coming up, though. I'll, I'll tell you when eventually. It's my New York anniversary. No way. Yeah, it's the day I moved to New York. How many years has it been? It's been, let's put it this way, more than 25. Wow. Yeah. And I came here today for an internship with our co-editor of Airmail, Graydon Carter, and then his co-editor at the time, Kurt Anderson at Spy Magazine. And here I am. So... Just occurred to me this morning as I was... Where did you live when you first moved to New York? When I first moved to New York, because I was getting paid $50 a week for my internship. (laughs) $50 a week, wow. And as Graydon said to me, you know, you get the big money because that's the fun job. I lived with my Uncle Paul and my Aunt Nancy up in Connecticut because they had a room in their house they very kindly let me live in. And then when I got hired as a staff writer and reporter about three months into my internship, making $10,500 a year, I took a room at a Quaker boarding house. A Quaker? Wait, is this the one that's around Gramercy Park? Yes, it's near Stuyvesant Park. Yeah. Wow. Michael, you need to do a memoir of those years. I would read that. A little Quaker-run boarding house. I had my little room. They made, made me breakfast and dinner. It was great. That's so civilized. I know. Very civilized, right? Oh, how times have changed, Michael. How times have changed. Oh, times have changed. Yes. You know, now it's just private jets and everything for me. But speaking of living differently these days, I want to get to, I think, one of the craziest pieces in the issue this week that you brought in by Sheila Marikar, right? It's about what's going on down in Punta Mita, right? So Sheila Marikar is a wonderful writer and journalist, and she went down to Punta Mita, Mexico, which essentially was just sort of a collection of islands until a developer bought it in 2001 and turned it into a fancy resort. And there's a Four Seasons hotel down there that I've never been to, but everybody seems to love. And they have optimized COVID in what I think is a pretty clever way. They basically are catering to the Zoom school set. And, you know, we know many American kids this year are getting some semblance of an education over Zoom and parents want nothing to do with it in many cases. So no problem. Go to the Four Seasons. They will pair you up with a study buddy. There are also plenty of other little schools that have popped up down there. So you can either stay at the hotel, you can invest in second home, you can do a long-term rental. There are plenty of options for those of you who would prefer to outsource Zoom school while you perhaps lay on the beach. Talk about high-end problems. This is like sort of outsourcing your Zoom classroom for the 1% of the one percenters, right? At a hotel, a Four Seasons owned indirectly, but directly by Bill Gates of all people, right? So I don't know anyone sending money, you know, go, but it is, it's also this, I think this thing we've talked about at some of our meetings, our editorial meetings is it's sort of like, it's some version like families taking the gap year this year, right? And sort of deciding like, well, if the kids are going to be in Zoom school all day, why don't I could do that from anywhere, right? Yeah. I mean, as you know, I have two small kids. We have basically been in our house since March and I don't blame people people for acting on this desire to get out and try something new and try to find a bit of a silver lining in this insane year. But this Punta Mita situation takes it to a new level. I mean, can you imagine checking into a hotel for months on end, much less a Four Seasons? It's a level of sort of wealth and indulgence that few can rival. Yeah, and some of the extracurricular activities down there include, as Sheila says in her piece, teachable moments for parents. One woman says, my kids caught fish, brought them home, and we cooked them. It was a little gross. I'd never cleaned fish in my life before. Again, high-end problems of a certain people, but it's either going to enrage you or you're going to go to your computer and click, how do I make a reservation there? So we're fulfilling our mission here at Airmail. 
enraging you or giving you useful advice? It's a totally different kind of learning this year. I think, you know, many American kids are learning how to drive their parents crazy, how to steal food from the fridge with nobody noticing, how to like steal away a spare iPad or an iPod and hide underneath your room for hours while your parents are on Zoom calls. But then you've got these kids in Punta Mita who are like, you know, learning how to care for sea turtles, do all sorts of cool things, catching fish, spending time in nature. One of my favorite bits from this story is that at the Four Seasons, they have a screen doctor who wears a white coat and a stethoscope who patrols the infinity pool and all the lounge chairs cleaning off the iPad and iPhone screens that have been splashed by the chlorinated water. I mean, it's absurd. You can also take golf lessons with a PGA vet, forage in the sea, and you can make crafts in the style of the Huichol, which are the people indigenous to the region. Do you think Kellyanne Conway and her daughter should go down here for a little... Maybe that would solve what's happening in that house. I mean, I don't know. Oh, my goodness. The screen doctor could be a doctor of a different sort, like sort of just purging the screens, but... We were talking about this in our meeting yesterday. I mean, I'm no fan of Kellyanne Conway, right? But I have so much sympathy for her after watching her struggle with her daughter on TikTok. Kellyanne and her daughter, Claudia Conway, who's a 15-year-old avid TikToker, both have COVID. And... Claudia posted a video of Kellyanne coming to her room at like two in the morning, trying to get her to get off of her phone. And they were having sort of a philosophical argument about COVID testing. It was totally illuminating and it really humanized Kellyanne for me. Kelly, I sympathize with you. And I'm also absolutely terrified to have a teenage daughter of my own one day. I'm sure Cecily will be a very good daughter when she hits adolescence. That is very much up for debate, Michael. You know her, but we love you. I don't fear her live casting your problems, but Kellyanne's daughter gives you the just like, wow, I'm just being broadcast around the world right now, and I'm in the hands of a 15-year-old. Very feisty. All right, listen, let's talk about this new show by Darren Starr, the guy who created Sex in the City. This is called Emily in Paris, which is basically like people are either loving this or hate watching this show, right? And you, you brought this piece in, so tell us about it. My guess is that anyone over 18 is hate watching it and anyone under 18 is loving it. Emily in Paris is a show about a plucky young woman from Chicago and she comes to take on the French. She's installed in the French office of a marketing firm that her company in Chicago recently acquired. So it's the proverbial young girl in Paris storyline and we always sort of talk about this at the office because we're kind of francophiles many of us and some of us have lived in Paris some of us are currently living in Paris and Alexandra Marshall one of our writers felt the need to take this on she's been living in Paris since 2006 and so she's got this American girl thing down pat she writes when you're an American and you live in Paris people back home get excited and they have questions you indulge them because you love your friends and family Alex writes that when the teaser for Emily in Paris came up across Netflix in September, she and her fellow expatriate American women all went in, into what she calls a defensive crouch because, you know, people are always trying to, to say like, oh my gosh, you're just like Emily in Paris, just like any woman who was a writer in New York City in the 90s and early aughts was compared to Carrie Bradshaw. So Alex takes this on um, and, and sort of like undercuts the cliches of the piece. I mean, within the first episode, Emily is wearing a beret and taking selfies in front of the Eiffel Tower, wearing a Chanel purse. Patricia Field has done the fashion in this as she did for Sex in the City. So some people are watching it for the fashion angle to it. I would say it's not my favorite Patricia Field project. Feels a little more lipstick jungly than Sex in the City, but who is this show made for? Like it sounds like it's made for like I think it's for the gossip girl set. 
But like, if you were between the ages of 15 and 22, that would be my guess. I could be completely off. Not the women who grew up watching Gossip Girl 10 years ago. It's like the new sort of like Gen Zers. It's the crew of high schoolers and college kids who are not currently attending high school or college due to the pandemic. So there's probably a lot of binge watching of this show going on because, you know, there is sort of the reason I sort of enjoyed it is because there's a fun element of pretending like you're in Paris, which is a place that I usually go this time of year, frankly. I always go to celebrate my birthday and I'm nostalgic for it. So I enjoy seeing it on the small screen, especially kind of in a contemporary context. And there are some parts of it that do feel really true. Like one of my favorite lines was when Emily invited her boss out to lunch and her boss said, no thanks, I'll just have a cigarette. And I mean, that's just like, it's a cliche, but there's an element, of, a kernel of truth to it. And it's one of those things that never fails to amaze me about about France, especially in 2020 when we surely know better. Back to Sex in the City. Which character were you? Oh, God. I think everyone was Carrie, right? Actually, I was probably Miranda. I was like a writer version of Miranda. Do you agree with that? Mm. I don't What's know. Right Who do you think I am? That's a, more, that's a more pertinent one because that show is designed so that everybody sees themselves in the most flattering context. I didn't really watch that show. This is my interaction with that show. Back when it was on and I was a single man in New York, my mother called me and told me she was watching the show, which like upset me enough because imagine being like a man and you're a bachelor in New York and like, you know what's going on in the show and like, you know, your mother's like, well, it's all this great new show. It's called Sex and the City. And like, then you have friends telling you like the sexual exploits of this, that they're watching on this show. Anyway, my mother was all worried for me. Like, are those women really like that in New York? <laughs> So that was my interaction with the show. And I also think that show helped ruin New York. It helped bring a wave of people here that thought New York was this kind of Disneyland theme park. And, you know, they kind of took the grid off New York and made it a little more about, you know, little croissant bags and from Fendi and, you know, anyway, but that's me being grouchy. They weren't all living in Quaker and boarding houses, okay? That's what I'm saying. That's for sure. I know. My first apartment in New York was kind of the opposite of the Carrie Bradshaw experience, but I do look back on those days so fondly. And that also that time in New York was different from the way it was sort of broadcast on the show. I agree with you there. But, you know, Michael, your wish is coming true. I mean, New York is getting grittier by the day, as anyone who's gone out to dinner recently can. That's guess. true. It used to be Disneyland, but now you can't go out to dinner without getting hit up by uh, somebody for money or food. Or It's a very interesting time in lower Manhattan. Sort of like asking you how badly you want it now, you know? The, it's weeding out the wheat from the chaff or the gold from the dreck, whatever, you know? Like, people were like, real New Yorkers, and the other ones, like, they're going to flip back to Chicago or wherever Emily in Paris is going to go and Carrie Bradshaw or Miranda. But. <sighs> All right, Michael, moving on. We'll leave Paris behind for a minute, and hopefully we'll get there soon. Thank you, Alexander, for a great piece. Guys, enjoy the show. And if you, if you like the show, if you disagree with us tremendously, by all means, write to us. We want to hear what you think. Michael, there's really only one story that we need to talk about right now. What's that? Donald Trump's super spreader. This is the bad TV show, just like Emily in Paris. This is Donnie in D.C., right? This is the, the story we've all been forced to watch for the last four years now, right? Yeah, and I'm living in fear of the season finale, frankly. Yeah, I think we all are. So, yeah, this week, Saturday, Sunday, Donnie was in the hospital and... It does feel like a bad episode of All My Children, right? He was in the hospital. He's on steroids. He feels better. I mean, by the time that this is published, there's a good chance we'll be back in the hospital again. So we probably shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. But we have a very special guest today. The first time he's ever appeared on the show. Graydon Carter, our co-editor. Graydon is reporting live all the way from France for this. Graydon, thank you so much for joining us. All right. Well, we've read your uh, view from here this weekend. In a word, 
It is savage in the best possible way. What was going through your mind over the past week as you were digesting the news? I guess what was going through my mind in the past 10 or 12 days was just simple rage that a president could act and speak so irresponsibly during a pandemic like this. And none of it's surprising. It's just the extent of it was alarming. When you're talking about looking back 10 to 12 days, does that take us sort of to the piece in the New York Times, the the bombshell story about his tax returns? Yes. I mean, that's sort of the beginning of the end in a certain way. One hopes. I thought the tax return story was extraordinary, and the, uh, these happen to be reporters who can all investigate reporters who can also write really well. They didn't get too involved in the weeds. They told a story which made it that much more powerful and easier to digest. And the fact that Trump, <laughs> the fact that Trump, the year he's running for president, the presidency, he pays seven hundred and fifty dollars in taxes. A cynical person would have read, written an extra check for a million just to get away from that low amount or paid nothing. Nothing would be a, a, a less catchy sum in a certain way than $750. I loved Kamala Harris's reaction last time. She said, I first heard it about $750,000. She said, no, $750,000. He's like, what? He's a gouger and he'll get away with it. <laughs> Well, I also love, because in your piece this week, it led to what it was one of my favorite lines of many lines, where you say he's old, he's obese, he has a lingering heart condition, and as we now know, thanks to the Times, he's low income. <laughs> I wish I could take credit for it. It's actually Tom Fraston mentioned that to me in a Zoom call. I thought it was really funny, so I just appropriated it. <laughs> but Brayden, do you really think that, it was a bombshell to us, right? But do you really think that his base understands what this really means, that he paid no taxes, which is to say that he had no income? Or do they think that he's just a smart guy who avoided it? I think that $750 is a seismic amount, given that the average income for an American is $12,000 in taxes. I, I think that really sticks in the craw of a lot of people. I don't know whether his, you know, the, the racist aspect of his base cares that much or the, the sort of the grievance aspect of his base cares that much. But the people in between, I think, will. Um, and then, OK, so like a day after that, I mean, what a news cycle. We go to the debates. What was your interpretation of his performance? I didn't see either the debates because I'm on the wrong time zone. And I just it's just too much to watch them the next morning. No way to start a day. So I read all the recaps and he was more unhinged than usual in his debate, clearly. And hence, I saw the photographs as mine with the fly in the head and everything like that. He's got the strangest, blandest look. It looks like a police composite drawing. It looks like it's, it's, it's taken from another drawing. It's way too small for his face. He's got the pastiness where Trump has the orangeness. They're a, a very strange combination of sort of orange and cream. It's like a pie and ice in a certain way. <laughs> but I know it's possible Trump, I don't think you noticed, he, I don't think he got a chance to get near the hair dye because his hair was, had a sort of grayish tinge to it, which it should have. And I think that the the cream he applies the liberally to his face wasn't in evidence. I actually thought he looked better with gray hair and normal colored skin. Not healthier, just better and more normal. COVID becomes him. COVID becomes him, yes, in many ways. Right. Does he or doesn't he? Green, that reminds me that you've seen him for many years, decades now, you know, almost, I was just looking back that piece you wrote for GQ back 1984 or so, which was when you look back at him, what do you think is his greatest flaw? 
Well, he's a micro-megalomaniac, and that they, uh, megalomaniacs, to me, the one flaw they may have is that they, because they say it, they believe it to be true. And he, so he's got that. I don't think he's anywhere near as bright as he thinks he is. In fact, Howard Kaminsky, who was his publisher at Random House, for uh, The Art of the Deal, wrote to me when Trump was running for office and said that he thought he was one of the dumbest people he'd ever dealt with in his life. And Trump's not smart. He's very canny, though. And he, you know, I knew he'd be venal and incompetent, but I didn't, I didn't factor in just how sort of mindlessly evil he would be, you know, like in things like the immigration policy and just random acts of, of human cruelty to, to the electorate. Yeah. Which reminds me, like, you know, look, obviously everyone says, or many people say, many people, his detractors, that he's clearly not a great president. He's a bad president. But, you know, the thing that someone has said to me recently, like, but he'll be one of the most consequential presidents, right? I mean, the consequences of these four years, certainly we're going to be living through them forever. Do you do you feel that way? Well, the family member that burns down the house while everybody's asleep, they become one of the more consequential family members. Uh, <laughs> you know, Hitler was probably the most consequential leader Germany has ever had. I'm not sure consequential is what you're going for in the history books. America's good at self-healing. And if you look, you know, like Washington before the Second World War, it was a sleepy hog town. And it, you know, through good leadership and intent, it, it geared up to become the most powerful military operation in the world. And, and I think Washington and America can do it again. It'll take like four years. We recovered from the 2008 recession. We can recover from Trump. It'll just take a while and be painful. How do you interpret his behavior, Graydon, after he was diagnosed with COVID and after he started tweeting that it was no big deal and, in fact, that it was a gift from God? Is this a guy on steroids or is this just an unhinged world leader? Yeah, when you hear people say it's the drugs talking, that's not something you want to hear in a world leader, especially the the most powerful man in the world. I think he is so terrified of getting out of office. There are 1,700 lawyers in the, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District. You know, he's belittled them and they want revenge. There's the New York Attorney General. You've got Sybanch. You've got so many investigations that are going to swirl around him the moment he steps out of office that he will do anything to keep that office. That raises the big question, which is, you know, on everyone's mind these last four weeks of, of the election cycle, assuming he does not have the most votes after the election. How do you think it ends for him? How do you think it plays out? Do you mean if he loses? Yeah, if he loses. Well, How I think, think there's a possibility, and I'm, I've given up thinking that far ahead, given the last election where I got it so wrong. Um, I think there's a possibility that it is a landslide, that they lose the Senate and the presidency. If that's the case, you know, remember, they still hold on to office for 78 days. They can do a lot of damage. But what he wants to do is avoid these prosecutions that are going to hobble him and hobble his family. Well, that's the big, is in those 78 days, he's unchained. He's unchained. You know, I say, and I've said this before, that he's like the, like the drunk being dragged out of the bar and he just like smashes the, win- the window with his elbow as he's heading out. He's not going to give a damn. And I don't think he cares that much about his family or what's going to happen to them, but I don't think it's going to be pleasant. And it's not just about being non grata in social circles. It's going to be having serious legal consequences. Do you think he should go? There's people have split 
with like, is it right to put a former president on trial? What kind of precedent is that set? Do you think he should, if they find crimes that he should be, go to trial? Yeah, if you're a nation of laws, the laws apply to everybody. And I also think that America's got to rethink this long period when an ex-president, maybe it's just in this case, the long, long period when an ex-president gets to hold office before the new one is sworn in at 70, some 78 days. In Britain, they do the switch, they switch over the next day. And and I think that's I think it's healthier and better and leaves less room for potential damage that somebody like Trump could do. Yeah, it's one of those legacies, I mean, sort of like from the 18th century where you need someone to get on the car- horse carriage and go to Washington and make, you know, arrangements. But like... No, the same thing like the, the Electoral College. It's it's out of date. The Senate's out of date. You know, Wyoming has two, New York State has two. I mean, that makes absolutely no modern sense whatsoever. Yeah. In the event that Biden and Harris do win, Graydon, what do you think should happen to the Supreme Court? Well, they will still have seven, the Republicans will still have 78 days to try to get that through. I think very difficult. Some senators have to leave office the next day uh, in some states, uh, but we'll see. I mean, I, I, I think it'd be highly unlikely for them to push it through, and I don't think it's what the people want either. Last night, Mike Pence asked Kamala Harris, essentially, would they have any plans to stack the court or perhaps to rebalance the court is a term that's being used more in Democratic circles. But do you think that they should start taking sort of steps to sort of even out the court, perhaps adding justices? Do you see that happening? I don't think you can add justices, and it's very difficult to subtract them. I think you just have to live with the consequences and try to stop it. You know, back to your thing about the, uh, you're just reminding me about that, that he's on drugs. I said to someone yesterday, it sort of reminds me of, and you mentioned Hitler, but like Hitler down in the bunker, uh, amped up on speed in those last months of, of the war, you know, where you're just making any kind of decision. But Jacob Bernstein put on Twitter the other day, and he's talking about Nora, his mother, and he said, among the things that they gave her for her leukemia towards the end was an intensive dose of steroids. And he said, two things happened. One, she went on steroids, she finished a TV pilot in five days, he said, and then three months later, she was dead. And the doctors call it steroid euphoria which is exactly, you know, I think what we're seeing here, you know. And if you follow the trail of poor Herman Cain, you know, he, he gets the virus, he goes to hospital, he's he's cured, he's out and about, he's feeling great, and 15 days later, 30 days later, he's dead. So, I mean, this is, I think this is a false recovery. If, if, if Trump had it, he's going to be having it and be with it for a good long while. And whether if he stays on this, this steroid, God knows what can happen. I do think the U.S. military will not let him do anything rash in terms of a an international action. I mean, I hope they won't. A kind of wag the dog kind of distraction. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Or just yeah. smashing the, the, the window with his elbow on the way out. <laughs> the news just broke about the next debates. Joe Biden said that it was going to be a virtual debate and then Trump just came out and said he wasn't going to do it. What do you think Biden's strategy should be for the next 28 days. Milo, don't debate. You can't debate this man. It's like debating a, a pit bull. You can't, you can't debate somebody who doesn't abide by the laws of civil discourse. It just, it, it, it's not illuminating to the public. It's meaningless. And he should not debate him, A, for health reasons, and B, for just reasons of sanity. I don't think anybody gets anything out of it. It makes for, I suppose, good TV, but that's no reason to do anything. You mentioned earlier, I mean, that he's certainly, and I'm also just laughing, I'm thinking about your line about Pence in the police sketch because he looks like the strangler or something or, or sort of like the Boston strangler. I mean, it's just like that anonymous face, right? He looks like the Unabomber. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and don't forget the Unabomber. He was a frustrated writer. All he wanted was someone to publish his words. You're making me think about Trump's savviness. And yet, you know, there is that kind of sociopathic mentality to him, which is just he believes the laws of society don't apply to him, right? It's just. But do you think he's mentally unstable or is he just insecure about not looking smart all the time? Well, first of all, there's two types of famous people. There's famous people who think they can get away with anything. And there's famous people, and they that they live in a, a fame bubble that allows them all all freedom. That's the Trump kind of fame. And then there's the fame of people who think I'm famous now. I've got to be careful because everything will wind up in the papers or on on, on some uh, gossip website. And that's what most famous people are. You know, Robert Redford's been famous for almost 50 years, you never see his name in the gossip poems or whoever he's dated or who he's married. Most people don't know who he's married to now because you can keep it out of the papers. Trump insists on keeping everything in the papers and you pay a price for it at the, at the end of your life. It's called a private life for a reason. If Trump doesn't end up in prison, Graydon, what do you see his next act as being? Do you think he'll, it'll be a media empire? Well, first of all, you know, television is is the, the last resort of the miscreant, especially, you know, uh, right-wing television. I can see him having his, I know he looked into this before he before he was elected, that this was part of his plan, that if he ran, he could start up his own sort of Fox News-like Trump-oriented TV uh, network. And I think he'd probably go to that. I mean, look at the people on right-wing TV. They're, they're horrible. So it, it, that I can see him being, uh, it's why I never ever turn on TV, when, cable TV. I can listen to the podcast because I'm in France, as you know, and but the people listening to this might not. That's why I didn't watch either of the debates. And I never turn the TV on. I listen to, you know, Morning Joe and, and Rachel Maddow the next morning and Nicole Wallace. But other than that, I don't, I'm reading the papers. Other than that, I don't follow it. It's a route to madness. Yeah, it's not much information. It's just a lot of opinion. I was thinking too this morning, you know, about his, how he sort of climbs and everything and back to, we can't see now, but the letter that we have in the airmail offices on the mantle of the fireplace there that he sent to you when he became editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because he hated, he threatened, as you, Mike, you worked work with Spy Magazine, he, he threatened to sue us a number of times. And we did this, a friend of mine, Steve Proben in Canada uh, suggested one day, he said, hey, why don't you see if you can get rich people to sign really small checks? So this project is, Mike knows, took a, a, about a year. So we sent out 32 cent checks to a number of millionaires and billionaires that were crawling around in New York society at the time. And the people who signed and, and deposited the 32 cent checks, we decided to see if they'd sign a 16 cent check. And you have to wait all the time till the, the checks go out, till they're endorsed and they, and they come back. And we sent out a check, the people who didn't sign the 32 cent check, we sent them a 64 cent check to see if that would interest. But for the 16 cent check, finally in the end, two people signed it and deposited the money. Because you know, you got to take the time out say for deposit only and then sign your name. And the two who deposited were uh, Adnan Khashoggi, then a notorious arms dealer, and, and Donald Trump. And when I became editor editor of Vanity Fair, we'd his ongoing battle. He hated me for calling him a short-fingered Bulgarian and spy. And when I got to Vanity Fair, the transactional human being in him decided, oh my God, I have to be friends with Graydon again. So he invites me to his wedding to Marla Maples, which I went to just out of curiosity. And but it's at the Plaza Hotel. And it was like a like a product launch because it lasted about two hours. I don't think there was, I can't remember if there was a reception or anything like that. I was in and out of there. I got in there the moment it started and I left the moment it was over. It was lasted just a bit shorter than the actual marriage. 
And he went into the ones that Melania Trump, but I thought if I went and it wound up in the papers, my friends would never speak to me again. So he tried to then re-befriend me. And then I, we did something. Oh, he sent me in about 2014 or 15, he sent me a photograph. It was a tear sheet from a magazine. It was an ad for The Art of the Deal. And he circled his hands in the photograph with a gold Sharpie and sent it to me and said, see, very big hands. So I took that. I, I, I wrote on my note card and stapled it to it. And I just wrote, actually quite small. And I folded it up, put it on, but I had a messenger right back to him that day. And then he went on a Twitter rage against me and just calling me the worst editor, that I was sleepy, that I was dopey, that the restaurants were the worst, that my wife thought I was a loser. And this went on for like 49 tweets. And then as you know, we, I blew them up to um, sort of legal uh, pad size. And we had 49 of them all framed outside the wall of my office at Vanity Fair as a sort of, um, a, a sort of wall of, of not fame, but shame. In fact, if you remember that uh, Paul Newman, even though after he won the the Academy Awards said his greatest achievement was being on Nixon's enemies list. So I feel that was a great accomplishment of my <laughs> Brain, uh, I don't know how we can top that. You can. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Michael, let's talk about Alex Gibney's new documentary. We have a fantastic story on it in the issue. Um, it's called Totally Under Control and it traces the American response to the COVID-19 crisis. This is kind of a perfect uh, segue out of that fantastic conversation with Graydon. And uh, in the week we've just had with Donald Trump coming down with coronavirus, uh, totally under control. It's a documentary that's coming out in uh, October 13th from Neon Productions. And Gibney, if you don't know him, he sort of did the Enron documentary. He did the documentary about Scientology. And he filmed this in secret over the last five months. The title is taken from... Trump's chipper first comments about the crisis when it was looming, where he says, everything is totally under control. This documentary will enrage you and alternately depress you and alternately scare you, depending on where they are in it. But the thing that sort of enraged me the most is, as Nina Burley, writer, writes in this piece, there's no doubt that the first goal of the administration was always ideological and profit-led, with top-down decision-makers, Jared Kushner and Trump, mainly favoring free market principles over expert advice. So, and then there's cynical hacks like Health Secretary Alex Azar, basically abandon principle to maintain favor. And to Kushner and Trump, their definition of acting in the public interest means leaving money on the table. So flashback to this weekend, Trump is in the hospital. They put him on a drug from made by Gilead, Remdesivir, which, by the way, is financed by taxpayers, this drug. It's, they produce it for $10 per dose, but sell it for $3,000 a pop, right? So Trump takes this drug, obviously, thanks to our taxpaying dollars, and he walks out of the hospital, Walter Reed, after a few days, at our taxpayer Pair's expense. So he gets he gets all that for free. So it's an unbelievable documentary, sort of which leads you to the end of the story, the end of sort of like realizing that America is an outlier in this crisis. If you look at South Korea, as Gibney points out in the, in the documentary, a nation of 51 million people that had the right response. The experts were allowed to execute the response, unlike in America, where they were blocked from executing that, as you learn in the documentary. Scientists and public health experts at every turn were, were blocked from enacting the program to stop a pandemic like this. South Korea with 51 million people, they had only 500 deaths because of coronavirus. So I think it's required viewing for everyone as you go into this election season. Well, it sounds super cheery, Michael. I can't wait to watch it after I'm finished with Emily in Paris. Yeah, what's Emily in Paris doing now that the French cafes and bars are all locked down again because of the, the second wave over there? That's why we need this escapist television more than ever. And can I just take a second and talk about the transformative power of music and the passing the other day of Eddie Van Halen? This is not in the issue, but 
I just want to give Eddie his due if you're talking about 90s, 80s. And there was a great obituary I've got here that was ran in The Guardian by Michael Hahn over there. And it just talked about, you know, I mean, I think it's easy to see Van Halen as like sort of hair metal and just sort of like good time party music. But Michael did a, Hahn did a great job of contextualizing Eddie. And basically, you know, he's got this quote from Joe Elliott of Def Leppard who says, what Eddie Van Halen did was reinvent the electric guitar. He took it to the next level. He did what Hendrix did in 1967. He made people start listening again. And I think it's often the sort of thing with Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen and, and his guitar. You're having such a good time listening to a song you don't really appreciate the artistry so fantastic guitarist who died this week which you know his songs ain't talking about love you can get, you've all got your favorite Van Halen song and yet in a strange twist as Michael points out in his in his obituary the solo that Eddie was probably most famous for isn't even on a rock song let alone a Van Halen song do you know what it is Ashley? Certainly not. It's a 20-second section reeled off in about a half an hour, as Michael Hahn says, that he was unpaid for. And it's in Beat It, the Michael Jackson songs. And, and it's a solo that really helped credit and helped Jackson cross over from R&B to become the world's biggest pop star. And that little riff in there played by Eddie Van Halen. So next time you're enjoying Beat It, that's the reach that Van Halen had, Eddie Van Halen had as a guitarist. So. Wow. Thank you for that, Michael. I think maybe we'll go listen to some Van Halen this afternoon just want to give him his due. Do you have anything else you can recommend to us? Guys, you actually just go rewatch Sex in the City, frankly. It's more enjoyable. Bruce Handy has a great review this week about the new Jerry Seinfeld memoir, so if you're looking for something fun to read, highly recommend that. It's called, like, the, the smart guy's sort of, like, cheat sheet. Treat a book review, especially one by Bruce Handy. Makes sure it gives you all the good bits of the book, and I feel like, wow, I got sort of, like, a great version of, of Seinfeld right there. Ugh, I actually, this is a book that I want to read more than the review of. Like, I, I just want to sort of get into Jerry Seinfeld's universe. Have you ever seen him do stand-up? I have, yes. Isn't he just, like, the best, funniest, like, craziest guy in the world? Yeah, you know, having watched SNL's debut last week where I saw Chris, where Chris Rock hosted and his monologue, I just was, like, yearning, like, I wanted to go back and sort of see all those great Chris Rock stand-up specials that he did. You know, you forget how long both these guys have been doing it and doing it well, so. Do you have anything else you can recommend to us? No, you. The only thing I could possibly recommend this week is if you have an hour and you're looking for some uplifting literature, go back and reread Here is New York by E.B. White. I revisit it as often as I'm reminded to do so. This time I was reading Stuart Little with my daughter and I went down like deep into an E.B. White rabbit hole, but it's just such a slim, wonderful little love letter to the city and something that's been top of mind for you and I, Michael, in the last, especially as Donald Trump continues to trash New York all over the place and say that the city is in a terrible state. I mean, New York is always going to be New York. And, and this is a wonderful little book that reminds you of why that's so. It's a beautiful book. I love one of the details in there that he articulates that I always try and explain to people who don't live in New York. And it really is a small town. And you sort of get to know the people in a two block radius who make it this village for you, this little town, whether it's the, it's the dry cleaner or the market or or the guy where you buy your wine from. And he's got this great little moment in there where he talks about how he just moves two blocks, but his whole world shifts in these relationships he's formed with the people who, like the guy who runs the cleaners and the guy who cuts his hair. Because he's moved two blocks away, which seems like nothing, he gets a whole new circle of sort of like people in his little town of that is his little neighborhood in New York. You know, I read it like you when I first came to New York on my anniversary, which is today. And it's such a beautiful articulation of why we love New York and a reminder that everyone comes from somewhere else and they, and you build these beautiful little relationships and that's what makes a city of eight nine million people feel like it's a small town and that you're really looking out for each other and we're living through this strange period in new york's history where for the first time ever probably it's almost devoid of tourists 
right? New York is now a, the special provenance of New Yorkers and New Yorkers alone. And it's such a strange, bizarre, and almost luxurious way to live. Sorry, guys. New York is definitely not dead. We're just all having a wonderful time enjoying it. E.B. White. Stuart Little. I'm so happy you're reading Stuart Little for the kids. Oh, it's so good. It's like the only way I can get my daughter out of bed in the morning is promising to read it to her over breakfast. I remember reading that book in third grade and it made me want to be a writer. Did it really? Also made me want to get a pet mouse when I got a pet mouse and then I wanted, and then I wrote stories about him. His name was Sniffles. And that was the beginning of the great Michael Haney literary extravaganza. Well, it's just E.B. White, such a beautiful, it was just, it made you dream, you know? So I'm happy to see that it still has that impact on kids. And adults, too. And adults, too, yeah. Morning Meeting is produced by Airmail Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. Special thanks to Joe Perzicki. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all our stories on airmail.news, which is updated every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify and rate us. Tell us what you think. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Thank you.